0: You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast.
1: Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley, standing in this week for Dennis Staunton. Later, we'll be hearing from Turkey, where voters go to the polls in a general election this weekend that's being keenly watched by the international community. But first, we'll assess how Britain's Prime Minister David Cameron is getting on with his campaign for EU reforms in advance of a referendum on Britain's continuing membership of the European Union. I'm joined from London by our London editor, Mark Hennessy, and from Brussels by Suzanne Lynch, European correspondent. Mark, to start with you, um, David Cameron spent part of the last week on a whistle-stop tour of European capitals, seeking to drum up support for for his demands for reforms in areas such as migration and sovereignty. Um, What's the view from Britain as to how he got on?
2: Well, it's probably a little over-optimistic. They've certainly taken great heart from comments made by Angela Merkel that treaty change is not an impossibility if she was translated properly. Now, that has given people uh, considerable hope here. However, uh, all of the other mood music that is coming from people close to Merkel, a few of whom we've spoken to in the last week, is indicating that a treaty change is very, very unlikely. And if it were to happen, it is uh, going to be very much delayed beyond the 2017 calendar that Cameron has, has laid down. So on that basis, it would seem that there may be some possibility that they could agree to offering the British some opt-outs, perhaps, at a later point, which would then be written into the next treaty, whenever that would be the case. Now, the problem for that, obviously, with, with, for Cameron, is that he would be going to the British people to try and sell a referendum on the basis of a promise that has not yet been cashed.
1: And to what extent is Cameron committed to treaty change? Is, is he backing off that idea a little bit? Is he, is he trying to find some wriggle room for himself there?
2: They're trying to find some wriggle room, but you know it keeps being mentioned uh, by people. Uh, uh, Philip Hammond, Foreign Secretary, has mentioned it. Other people close to uh, Downing Street have mentioned it as well. And they say that the formal legal advice that they've received is that some of the changes that they're looking for, particularly changes to in-work tax credit benefits, would require a treaty change because the problem with that is that it would mean that a British worker would be treated differently and better to an Eastern European worker who would be working alongside each other in the same factory, perhaps in the east of England or in many other places. And that is going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to sell to Eastern European countries who refuse to accept any semblance of them being presented as second-class citizens within the European Union. And it largely explained the choreography of the visit that we saw last week. He had intended going to Copenhagen, but had to cancel plans because an election was called there. He went to Amsterdam, those two visits were to try and drive home the message that there are other people in the European Union who are looking for reforms that Britain is not on its own. He obviously went to Paris and Berlin, being the motors of the European Union, and you can't get anything done unless you get uh, one or both uh, on side, and then went to Poland to try and soothe the um, uh, ruffled feathers that exist there over the way in which Eastern European workers are constantly presented in uh, the British debate now he's going to have to do a lot more of this Um, obviously we have the summit in Brussels at the end of the month It's unlikely to see a full and final presentation of British demands. It is largely going to be yet another chapter in the early uh, choreography that is going to be going on for quite some time. The British have, it would seem, backed away a little from talk of trying to do a referendum next year. Uh, They were told in no uncertain terms by people in Berlin and elsewhere that that timetable was uh, unrealistic. There was a very loose idea that perhaps they could have tied it in with the elections that take place next May in Northern Ireland and in Wales and Scotland, and also the London mayoralty election. Uh, that would have had the added benefit for number 10, that it would have attracted out uh, parts of the United Kingdom who are seen as being most pro-EU, because Cameron is still in the position where he is having a referendum he didn't want, and uh, was forced into having solely to deal with internal politics within the Conservative Party, rather than within Britain and itself. And uh, he is now in a situation where he has to try and get that referendum
1: passed. Now you mentioned uh, the summit at the end of the month. Uh, that's when we expect to hear in more detail exactly what reforms Cameron is seeking. Yeah, you'll hear in more
2: detail, but I doubt very much if it will be a full and final presentation on the part of the British, particularly if we are talking about Uh, negotiations going into next year and perhaps even longer than that into early in 2017. Now, uh, all of that starts getting very complicated. It gets tied in with the French presidential elections in April of 17. It gets tied in with the October uh, federal elections uh, in that year in Germany. Um, So there are complications coming all over the shop. And the one problem that you have, particularly with the British debate, is that it is so insular. They see all of the issues through the London prism and they constantly fail to take account of the difficulties that the very opening of talks creates for member states elsewhere.
1: Mm. And um, But in, in the meantime, while we're waiting for the, as you say, even at the summit, we may still not be we may still not have entire clarity as to what exactly Britain is demanding but um, from what we know now what are the key issues and what are the, the red line issues Um the, the well, we, that's, we know the that's an
2: interesting question because everybody has a slightly different interpretation of what it exactly is. Uh, what, what is agreed is that they want changes to welfare benefits uh, that would be written into to European law. So basically, you cannot you can come to you can work anywhere in the European Union, but you won't be able to work uh, or b- won't be able to claim uh, benefits anywhere in the Union. Now, the British position is particularly complicated because their welfare system is based on uh, it's a non-contributory system for the large large part. So uh, the Germans and elsewhere in Belgium, you don't qualify for uh, coverage unless you've made a certain contrib- the level of contributions. Uh, that, that situation it doesn't apply in Britain. And therefore, there are people who are claiming benefits who in other European countries wouldn't get them. The difficulty that there is, is that the number of Eastern Europeans, particularly, who are cl- and people from Southern Mediterranean countries more recently who are claiming benefits, uh, is actually quite small. They are coming here to work. They are not coming here to claim benefits. So even if Cameron actually manages to solve that problem, he's dealt with an important principle perhaps, but nevertheless, it's not going to be one that's going to make a massive difference to the British exchequer. Now what would be more difficult uh, is a change to the tax credit system. And this is effectively a system that Gordon Brown put into place which is subsidised cheap workers uh, in Britain to the benefit of companies. And uh, uh, people for instance who were who are married, who are in low pay work, who have a couple of kids can get between 8 and 10,000 uh, from the state in tax credits. Now obviously those payments are going to uh, people who come from abroad as well and Cameron is now saying that those payments should only go to people who are effectively British-born. That is going to be extremely problematic because that would effectively, if the European Union and the member states were to sanction that, it would mean that they're sanctioning discrimination of workers. Now, what some people in Germany are saying and suggesting is that the British should look at the way in which they structure their entire welfare system and to make uh, put in a contributory element to it, which would actually uh, see... Uh, everybody in Britain making different payments, perhaps to the same value in terms of their total tax bill, but it would be differently constructed. Uh, But it would mean that uh, freshly arrived incomers wouldn't get the same benefits. Now, you can imagine uh, a change on that scale would take years to introduce and certainly even to create a pot that would be there to, to fund any of the benefits that would flow from that would be extremely difficult. And there is no appetite in Britain for doing anything like that. Uh, equally, they want to have a, a a greater but somewhat undefined role for national parliaments. Now, there are people within the Conservative Party, people like David Davis and others, who are effectively looking for a line-by-line veto uh, that uh, Westminster would enjoy on the introduction in Britain of any particular element of uh, EU legislation, regulations, or directives. Now, clearly that is not going to happen. Uh, there, there, it, 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 it's likely that the Cameron will put forward some sort of a plan whereby uh, there would be a, 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 a change to the existing yellow card system within the European Union that if a large number of national parliaments come together and voice opposition to a directive coming from Brussels, that there would be changes or that it would be halted. Now, the difficulty that Cameron has is that he is able to keep many of his people on side up until the point when they finally understand that which it is that he's looking for. And once they see the full and final list, it is going to become much more difficult for cameron to uh, actually maintain unity within his own party because at this one point he's got to appear to be credible to his european union parties uh, partners by putting forward uh, uh, demands that are achievable and at the same time he's trying to balance that with demands that are, are coming from his own backbenchers which are to a very large part unachievable and within the context of keeping britain within the european union
1: Indeed. And it's not as if he has a very large majority in Parliament to, to, um, no, to se- see him through and that. It, it's far too
2: small for that. And you are looking, interestingly, at a Labour Party which is going to echo some of its anti-European Union roots of the 1980s. It won't go back to, to, to those roots, but there are 80 or 90 uh, North of England Labour MPs who are now looking at UKIP being in second place perhaps in a distant second place in most cases, but nevertheless in second place in their constituency. And they will have certain fears that the UKIP, uh, if it can finally get its act together and actually start to, to operate in a coherent way, that, uh, that it could become the voice of anti-European union uh, opinion within uh, the United Kingdom in the years to come, and particularly within the t- for the 2020 election. Because it is unrealistic for people to say outside of Britain that that everybody here should be happy about the level of immigration that's coming in there is absolutely no doubt that there is a, a suppression of wages taking place because of the number of immigrants who are coming in now to a very large extent that is a problem of the failure uh, an illustration of the failure of the british system to regulate itself in terms of imposing Um, uh, minimum wage laws and working conditions and all of the other things that are are necessary to keep a society together coherently. Uh, uh, They fail to do that. They allow for exploitation to take place. And then you see people in uh, poorer parts of the country who know that their wages have been reduced because of the level of migration that have taken place within those communities. Now, the difficulty that is, particularly during the labor years, is that those people were told that they were wrong when they claimed that that was happening and that made people angry because they were being told things were wrong when they knew them to be right and you, that has built up a well of resentment and it is there to uh, to be mined. Now there is a belief that if there was a, a, a European Union referendum right now that it would be passed. Uh, there is no guarantee that uh, such will happen if um, uh, with a, a deal that comes forward in 2 years time or perhaps less okay there is a, a there is no doubt that there is a very large Uh, feeling in Britain against uh, immigration, and that is there to be tapped by somebody. Now, they're going to be told by a lot of people in business that uh, the European Union is good for Britain and all of the rest of it, and there'll be lots of facts and figures. But we've seen again and again and again, with this sort of anti-politics mood that is across Britain, that you deal with that at your pearl.
1: Okay. Well, um, I'll bring in Suzanne Lynch in Brussels here on this. Um, Suzanne, how far do you think other EU leaders are prepared to go to meet Britain halfway uh, on this, and where will where will Cameron find support, and where will he meet most resistance?
0: And well, firstly, I think it's important to say that there definitely has been a change since the Conservative Party's decided to victory last month in the election. I mean, there was a sense in Brussels um, since. David Cameron's Bloomberg speech of January 2013, that, that people here were, were slightly in denial about the threat of a British referendum and, and kept saying, you know, we're not talking about this until we until we get specifics. But the the election of a Conservative majority government uh, has changed that. And now people in Brussels are really taking this seriously. There is now definitely going to be a referendum, and it may happen as early as, as late next year, as Mark was saying there, Um, So in that sense, um, there is a bit of a honeymoon period uh, at the moment. Um, Cameron definitely got a better reception than some had expected over the last couple of weeks. He began his uh, diplomatic offensive, if you like, in Riga just over a week ago where he met um, some leaders on the fringes of of that summit and then um, went to various different European capitals. Um, But I do think, as Mark was saying, when when things get down to the detail, when it gets down to the list and the nitty gritty well, then we can see that things will get a bit more complex. Um, But in saying that, I think ultimately um, the EU, it's a bit like what's happening with Greece. Um, The idea of a Brexit is still something that people are trying, desperately to avoid. And similarly, it will be with a Brexit. But I think we're going to see European leaders. I mean, Europe is the place of compromise. what Cameron's challenge would be to show that this isn't concession, that compromise can happen um, without making too many concessions. But I think European leaders will ultimately come together to try and offer Britain something that it feels it can sell to its voters. And then it'll be up to Cameron, as Mark's explaining there, to try and win over the internal divisions and the internal dissenters within his own party to, to be able to sell that to the British public.
1: I think there is a recognition, is there, within the European Union that Britain does bring something different, To the table, Um, you know, it's um, even among the different systems that they have in in Germany and France, where maybe there's more, um, certainly in France, Mm. the state plays a bigger role in in the economy and society and so on. But there's a recognition that that, uh, uh, Britain, with its emphasis on on, um, economic liberalisation, less regulation and so on, that it, it does bring something that's necessarily indifferent. Is is that still the case? Yeah.
0: I mean, Britain is still a very, very big country in terms of population, in terms of, of power in the European Union. Um, one of the things that it still has played a huge role in is foreign policy. Now, I mean, a lot of comment. There has been a lot of commentary that Cameron was not involved in the most recent talks with uh, the Russian President Vladimir Putin, that was chaired by um, Merkel and Hollande. But at the same time, Britain, along with France, is is one of only two members of the UN Security Council, nuclear power, etc. So it is a very, very strong foreign policy presence. And in the European Union, where Germany really is, you know, the biggest country, the most important country in terms of economic affairs, Germany, for obvious historic reasons, is reluctant to play that leadership role when it comes to foreign policy. So there is a, a feeling that Britain has a lot to offer in that regard. And then secondly, as you say, in, econo- in terms of economics and in terms of um, of its political economics, if you like, yes, Britain is seen, rightly so, at it's much more free trade um, than a lot of uh, European countries. We can see that at the moment in debates about the EU-US trade agreement, for example, um, that is very unpopular um, among the public in, in countries like Germany, Austria and France, but Britain is, sees trade as one of the, the advantages of the European Union. It's pushing strongly for the EU-US trade deal, as is Ireland. So Ireland would see itself aligned with Britain on a lot of these issues about uh, liberal, you know, liberal trade uh, systems, single market, digital single market, that kind of thing. So we would see alliances between countries like Britain, Ireland, uh, Denmark, the Netherlands with those kind of things. So, you know, Britain will get some support from from countries on on some of those issues. Um, But I think uh, what's important to to remember is that here in Brussels, every day diplomats from every country, including from Britain, are working on EU legislation and and they sit around the table with their peers and, and try and secure things for their country that's going to benefit their country. So I think Cameron's challenge will be to show that arguably changes that Britain may have and other countries may have got anyway to certain EU legislation is a, is a win for Britain, is a kind of a new way of renegotiating for Britain. For example, the European Commission is now bringing in laws anyway about reducing red tape and bureaucracy and they're going to see those finalised by the end of this year but that obviously dovetails with what Cameron is calling for with the European Union. So what we may see is a kind of a repackaging if you like of you know a British win or British demands as, as proof that Cameron has got changes when actually the European Commission arguably was going that direction anyway if you like. So that might be something to watch out for in the next few months.
1: Okay and as Mark mentioned there um, Angela Merkel perhaps surprised people by saying by not ruling out treaty change mm-hmm. um, after her meeting with uh, Cameron on, on uh, last Friday. Um, um, but would, would you agree with Mark's assessment? Would you? Is it fair to say that, that there is very little appetite across the EU for treaty change?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think this is Merkel, again, being you know, the constant politician, uh, keeping all o- options open, etc. But no, they're, they're very, very... I mean, treaty change is, is not going to happen. I mean, the Lisbon Treaty was the last big uh, treaty change in Europe. We remember that well in Ireland. And there was a sense that this is going to be the last treaty change for generations, really. Now, the, Br- the British had expected that the way the eurozone was going and the greater integration within the euro area, that that would have needed treaty change but it now looks like that's not going to happen that you know europe is still going to move through move towards further integration of the euro area and your economic governance without the need for treaty change so that that is not going to open up the possibility in the next few years so i think yeah as mark says i don't think treaty change is an option i am and philip hammond the foreign secretary who'd be regarded as quite your skeptic has again said well you know treaty change that Britain still favours treaty change, but I mean, at this stage, we can only see that as a negotiation tactic. Because I think everyone here in Brussels realises that, you know, treaty change is really not on the agenda at the moment.
1: And if it's not an option, then is is it possible still to deliver some of the demand, Cameron's demands? For, for example. Mm. um um, can, can you change the, the, the rules regarding welfare payments to EU citizens from other countries without treaty change?
0: Yeah, there's a couple of things here. It looks like um, the only possibility would be uh, some kind of intergovernmental agreement, which is a kind of another legal document that's kind of attached to the treaties. Or as Mark explained there, that there would be a provision that Britain would be allowed to kind of retroactively get treaty change when the next EU treaty negotiations open up. Uh, in terms of migration benefits, it's going to be the trickiest issue. But the the, the message here from most from people in Brussels is that actually the problem is with Britain's own welfare system and the way it's set up, the idea that it's non-contributory, etc. And that, you know, it really is within British laws and how Britain... Applies its, you know, access to benefits for migrants. That's where the changes are going to lie. So again, we may see it's going to be a question of optics here. That if Cameron is able to show that he got changes, be it more on the on the UK side of things rather than Europe, that this, you know, that that he will package this as a, a sufficient enough renegotiation that merits Britain staying in the EU.
1: Okay, and um, thanks for that, Suzanne. And Mark, come back to you briefly. Just on s- since Cameron uh, came back from his tour, I think the more one of the more interesting developments is his announcement of his Europe uh, cabinet, and the inclusion of that cabinet of, of quite a number of Eurosceptic uh, figures, such as Ian Duncan Smith and so on. You're, you're right about that in today's Irish Times. What should we read into that? Well,
2: uh, we're going to have to wait and see how that plays out, because you can read that two ways. One, he's brought his Eurosceptics on board so that he can tie them into um, the preparation for a referendum and for the eventual uh, outcome. Or you can argue that it's a, a, a reflection of his own weakness in some ways. Now, he's... His, the problem he's going to have, first of all, is with his own party, because so many of the people in his party believe he's going to ask for far more than it looks like he's going to ask. And once they realise that even the opening demands are, are, are fall short that creates a problem of discipline within the ranks. Now, he's he's currently at the height of his powers. He came back with a majority that nobody believed, including himself, that he could win. Uh, but the nature of the beast is that that political capital starts to shrink on day one. And as we get into 2017, we start getting stuck into the middle of the Conservative Party leadership change. He's talked about uh, not uh, going again for election, that he would st- stand down at the end of this parliament that wouldn't be realistic obviously there would have to be a changeover beforehand so the battalions who want to replace him will be moving uh, their pieces around the board uh, from uh, 2017 onwards and in fact uh, it's already happening to uh, a degree and that will accelerate and intensify and all of those kind of people will be making judgments about the, uh, the language that they're using about Europe uh, on the basis of what they think, first of all, the Conservative Party is thinking about the European Union, not just the British people, and that creates an issue whereby you can have uh, the, the the core dynamic coming out of uh, uh, Westminster, which is much more Eurosceptic than the nation at large. Because if you look at the opinion polls, if you, it, the answer you get to British feelings about the European Union depends on the way in which you ask them the question. If you ask them, "Do they like Brussels?", they very largely tell you that they don't. And at the same time, if you ask them the the top 10 things that most annoy them and uh, about which they are most concerned, the European Union doesn't feature, as a rule, it tends to be about crime education and all the usual things that get us all uh, exercised. So it depends on the kind of leadership that is offered. Uh, You're going to have a fractured Conservative Party. That's guaranteed. The question is how it will fracture. You're going to have a more Eurosceptic Labour Party uh, now than, one would have had for the guts of 25 years, you're going to have UKIP. Um, which obviously uh, got 4 million votes in the election but didn't win uh, any of the parliamentary seats, bar one, uh, that it had hoped uh, to win. But nevertheless, there is a belief that they can renew themselves uh, during the, the a, a, a European a Union referendum campaign. And all of those kind of things create, at least within England, um, the possibility that at least there is a very serious fight to be fought. Now, the, the mood in Scotland and Wales is somewhat different Uh, The Welsh are are definitely pro-European and pro-continuing. In Scotland, the SNP has largely convinced itself that Scots are are more pro-European, even though the actual figures show that they they, they vary very little uh, from um, English public opinion. But what Scots will react to is the idea that they could be taken out of the European Union by uh, the will of the English. And given the increasingly fractured constitutional debate that we're having here, that in itself will become an important factor over the next two years.
1: Okay, And finally, Mark, while we're discussing British politics, I think it would be remissive as not to mention Charles Kennedy, um, who's died suddenly at the age of 55. Uh, Genuinely respected and and much-loved man.
2: Yes, there aren't many that you would use the the word loved about, uh, but Charlie was, and uh, that even from people who were angry with him uh, 10 times a week, because there were many things about which uh, one could be angry uh, with Charlie Kennedy about, particularly if one worked for him during the time when he was party leader, and with all of the, the well-known problems that he had uh, with alcohol and, and all of the frustrations that that would have caused the, the people around him. But at the same time, in mean, talking to people within Westminster this morning, there is genuine grief uh, on the part of so, so many people. He was a very decent and kind human being and the way and the manner of his departure is, is
1: horrifying beyond words. Indeed. Um, Mark Hennessy in London, uh, we'll, we'll leave it there. Thank you for that. And Suzanne Lynch in Brussels, thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times. And now to Turkey, where the ruling Justice and Development or AK party is expected to win its fourth consecutive general election when voters go to the polls there on Sunday. I'm joined by Stephen Starr, our correspondent in Istanbul. Stephen, the AK party and its, its dominant figure, uh, Turkey's president Tayyip Erdogan, are, are a spectacular success story by any standard. If elections are any guide, they must be doing an awful lot right.
3: They have been, or at least they had been until about uh, two years or so ago. Um, there's been a number of factors, I think, that have changed their fortunes quite considerably. But uh, looking to the election on Sunday, at least, if we can start with that, It's about one man uh, with one objective. It's about the president, Tayyip Erdogan, who is, in fact, not a member of the AK Party, but because as president, he is not allowed to be involved in in politics, legally speaking. What he wants to do is to change uh, Turkey's constitution into a presidential system, which would give him executive executive powers. Uh, The reason the AK Party has been so successful at election time for the last, pretty much the last 12 years, is for two main reasons. Number one, they turned around the economy to such an extent that the country is unrecognizable as, uh, compared to the, the 1990s. Uh, the second point is that the rhetoric used by Erdogan and the AK Party more broadly uh, resonates with the majority of, of Turks in, around the country who are, generally speaking, moderately conservative, moderately Islamic in outlook. Now, a couple of things have combined to change that over the last couple of years. Number one, the economy has slowed down, not entirely the fault of of the AQ party itself. It's also a result of international uh, trends uh, among emerging economies. The second point is that there has been uh, certainly an understanding that the uh, AQ party's uh, political uh, activities are are more authoritarian. So we had a year and a half ago uh, bouts of uh, corruption allegations that involved Erdogan and his son uh, last year uh, last January of last year there was also an issue around uh, three trucks loaded with weapons heading in the direction of the Syrian border and um, that was thought to uh, have been uh, belonged to Turkey's intelligence services for so this and this the second issue was resurfaced just over the last week when a local newspaper published uh, video images of these three ch- trucks uh, in response, Erdogan, who again, uh, we have to say, shouldn't be part of the election issue at all, although he has been speaking publicly in support of the AK party over the last couple of weeks, uh, has uh, launched a lawsuit against the uh, editor-in-chief of, of the newspaper. So in general, people are seeing this rhetoric and these activities by the AK party as, be- as becoming less democratic, and uh, that combined with the economic uh, downturn we can call it recession even as in from last month are uh, bringing a new threat or a new challenge at least to the uh, the AKP parties
1: okay and now i think notwithstanding the um, decline in the in the in economic performance the the party will certainly still be the biggest party um, in sunday's election but what kind of result does it need to facilitate um, this drive by Erdogan to um, if you like, to change the um, the constitutional uh, nature of, of Turkish politics and, and, and acquire more powers for himself as president?
3: Yeah. So they're currently on 312 seats in the Turkish parliament. But they need to get, in order to uh, put through a referendum to change the constitution, is 330 seats. Uh, there's a key issue here as well, which has been the rise of the Kurdish uh, HDP party. Um being Kurdish, it resonates a lot with the conservative, we can say conservative, uh, rural residents of, of Turkey, uh, which had at least um, very recently backed the AK party at, at the election time. So if that uh, uh, element of Turkish society were to slide with uh, the HDP, it would take away from the AK party, which would mean, in fact, they could lose some seats, up to 40 seats, they believe. He can get into Parliament in the first place. And because the, the threshold is at 10%, and because polls are suggesting that the HDP party itself will come in between 95 and 10% of, of the popular vote, it's very unclear. To, to, we don't know whether they'll actually get into Parliament. And if they do, it's a problem for Erdogan. Uh, if not, it's unlikely, I think, that they'll get to 330, which would... Uh, um, C4, which will initiate, or at least given given the chance to uh, have a referendum on change in the constitution. So there's a lot of different uh, elements at play here.
1: Right. Yeah. He has, in fact. I mean, he has uh, um, almost acquired ex- executive power since he was elected president last year. It's almost as if he's uh, he, he's not even waiting for um, uh, the the sort of constitutional mandate to do so. Is that fair, or um, has he has he operated within the boundaries of his office? I mean.
3: Legally speaking, he can't do very much. It's, it's still a ceremonial post to the president of the, of the Turkish Republic. But, of course, when he speaks, people listen, having been the, the figurehead of Turkish politics and of the AK Party for the last 12 years or so. So when he speaks, he's not allowed to speak uh, on the campaign trail. But, of course, he does attend uh, public events, opening of various institutions and uh, whatnot around the country, Uh, And when he speaks there, he speaks about politics and he speaks about why people should support the AK Party. Um, Also recently, he was in Germany uh, talking about how why uh, Turks there should Turkish uh, citizens there should vote for the AK Party. So it's he's certainly encroaching or he's certainly stepping over the line of what his post allows him to do. Um, But of course, his ultimate goal is to is to change the constitution when he can uh, by himself change laws and do pretty much and run rules essentially over over Turkish politics um as he
1: does. And what would the likely consequences be if the party gets the this sort of super majority it needs in parliament um then to push through the constitutional reforms to give him more powers as president are are we inevitably then looking at an even more um authoritarian and sort of autocratic you know Turkey than than we have now if Erdogan succeeds in getting these powers
3: yeah, you're looking at a lot of, a lot of, of new changes in, in Turkey at that stage. There would be uh, international investors, I imagine, would flee from, from Turkey if that were to be the case. Uh, journalists would, would face more repression. The Kurdish peace process, which, is, which began two years ago but it stalled uh, about six or eight months ago, uh, would, would probably fall apart uh, most likely. Uh, and Turkey would, would probably descend into you know, a semi-regime type uh, uh, form of government uh, and go very in the opposite direction, I suppose, of where it was planning to go uh, 10 or 12 years ago, which was in the direction of the of EU membership. Um, to get a supermajority, I think it's very unlikely that that, uh, that the AK Party would win a supermajority. Uh, it would need, I think, 376. Seven seats, I believe, and they're as I say they're currently on three twelve, and that's a lot to make up now. But you know, then again, who, who knows what can happen? We saw how, how uh, things worked out in the UK, so uh, it's a three difficult call, I think. Of this.
1: And and what about in particular media freedom there, Stephen? Um, as Erdogan acquires more more power, I think um, uh, there are increasing concerns about uh, media and journalistic freedom. Is that right?
3: Yeah. So, so my colleagues here would be most concerned about if they write something in a newspaper or if they say something on television uh, that, that uh, goes against uh, the AK Party and even Erdogan himself, their line of thinking that they will be sued, uh, that there will be lawsuits brought against them. There are hundreds of lawsuits brought by the AK, by AK Party uh, individuals and also by the President himself uh, against journalists and against various other uh, members of, sort of society who, who oppose or at least disagree with what the, the AK Party is saying. So this is the you know before a journalist sits down to write a report to do a news broadcast, they're thinking about the consequences of what they're going to say because because they know that it's it's pretty much guaranteed that if they say something uh, that's openly opposed to uh, the, the, the the president, that they'll be served with a lawsuit at some stage in the future, and uh, for, you know and most recently as I say this um, local newspaper that, that uh, broadcasted images. Mm-hmm. The editor-in-chief of that newspaper is being charged, or at least he's been called a spy by Erdogan in public. And that uh, the rhetoric and the talk coming from Erdogan is that he is uh, uh, oper- doing, uh, acting kind of, I suppose, in support of terrorist activities. So when you when you start on that line of calling uh, journalists spies and uh, potentially uh, terrorists, it's a very slippery slope, indeed. I think.
1: And how much concern is there within Turkey, Stephen, about these developments? Is it having any impact on his support? Um, Is his own support base really... It's probably a conservative support base, and are they just not concerned about uh, these kind of issues?
3: I think that the the, the main, the essential uh, result of of all these changes and and the uh, uh, the divisive talk by the AK Party is is that Turkey itself, as a society, is becoming much more divided and, and, and divisive. His core support he may have lost a small, very small percentage of uh, of support uh, because of the way he speaks and how kind of uh, uh, undemocratic he he speaks, I guess we could say, and also because the economy is slipping down as as well. uh, He's losing a, we can say as I say, a small percentage of the the base kind of section of society that would have voted for him in past, a vote for the AK Party in, in past elections. Uh, But it's still a very, very strong uh, political party. It's it's a very, very savvy political machine. There was a a rally here in Istanbul last Sunday, Mm -hmm. and there was hundreds of thousands of people in attendance. So those people who—and I mean, this is in a large, cosmopolitan city such as Istanbul. Then you talk about all the the smaller cities of a million-plus population in central Turkey, which people there will vote for Erdogan, no matter what he says. Um, so I mean, generally I think we can say that he would lose. He's been it's because of his actions and also because of the economic situation. He would lose a small section of support, but the overall uh, consequence I think is that Turkey itself is becoming a much more divided society, and that is a long-term concern I think for for many people.
1: Okay, so Stephen, just to recap then on. On Sunday's election, the, the key thing maybe then to watch out for is the performance of the, the Kurdish-supporting HDP party and whether they succeed in getting over the 10% threshold to get seats in Parliament or not. That's really going to be critical, isn't it, it's the overall outcome?
3: Exactly right. And it's, it's really 50-50 to say whether they will get in or not. And, you know, the HDP really is the, the, uh, the kingmaker uh, and really will decide the direction uh, of Turkish politics for the next four years at least. Um, if it gets into the parliament. If, and, oh, and even you can say if it doesn't, because if it doesn't, it uh, will uh, certainly assist the AK Party in, in heading down the road of, of holding a uh, referendum on uh, the on changing uh, Turkey's constitution to become presidential assistance. system. So really all eyes should be on the performance of the HDP on Sunday.
1: Okay, well, we'll, be, we'll all be watching on Sunday. And Stephen Starr, thank you for that analysis. That's it from this week's edition of Worldview. From producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White and me, Chris Dooley, thank you for listening. Goodbye.